0: and welcome to The Byline Podcast. My name is Mai Jabali and I am your host for episode four. The Byline is an innovative speaker series fashioned into a weekly podcast. We dive into the stories being told by some of the most daring and inquisitive journalists covering the Middle East and beyond. Each event turned episode is built around a theme, a topic, a place, a major story with several journalists sharing their reflections on what it's like to cover those stories, what it's like behind the scenes. The byline is a bridge to give everyone more access, more depth and perspectives for audiences and more avenues for journalists to share the value that they create in their work. Tonight is our season finale. We've spent three episodes talking about some pretty heavy stuff with journalists grappling with violence, personal loss, restrictions on free press, and so on. If it sounds like a lot, it's because it is. So for our season finale, we decided to serve you up something a little bit lighter because it can't all be that bad. A few weeks ago, we gathered with dozens of our most adoring fans in Beirut, and they listened to the more lighthearted dynamics that journalists have been reporting on in the region. Spanish reporter Natalia Sancha
1: opened for us that night. So, yeah, I'm the Spanish uh, journalist who have been here for nine years, and uh, we're talking today about uh, this little oasis of hope in the middle of conflict zones and war. And uh, to explain to you how hard is my job is to explain to Spanish people and South American people what the region is i give you an example. When I say I live in Beirut, they're all, oh, my God, you have like suicide terrorists in every corner. I'm like, "Yeah, hey, I'm in Germany. <laughs> and they don't get this. So if explaining Lebanon and Beirut is difficult, explaining Syria, Yemen, Egypt, or Iraq is even more difficult. So I'm someone that's, when I go to cover, uh, normally I choose for two weeks, I always try to get a little bit of light into it. Uh, not only because, uh, because it's there, because uh, it shows the personality of each country, shows when you try to survive into the conflicts, when they make this little oasis of normality, because psychologically you need it. Uh, you, I mean, in Syria, for example, which is the country I cover the most, you have 23 millions. There is half million of men doing war, but there is 23 millions of civilians surviving it. So despite that they had a previous life before, now they try to find this not to find, to create these small spaces to feel mentally sane. So I do this because I think it reflects reflects the deep personality of the countries. And also because I need it. I need to show that there is more than war in these places. And when you come back every night to the hotel or to the camp or wherever you're sleeping, you need also to breathe and have these five minutes of laughing or saying, okay, today was something nice. It was also something good out of it. There was human there. So, I would like to share uh, with
0: And we are joined now by Natalia Sancha, who is the special correspondent for Spanish paper El País, and she has reported in Yemen, Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, and beyond. Recently, you joined us for a, a talk in Beirut, an evening of sharing positive stories in an otherwise very bleak landscape. Um,
1: why is it important for you as a journalist to share those positive stories? It is important because I think that when we report war, you can do it from a lot of different angles, different styles, but war is war, people die and you always have the usual uh, uh, elements like the fighters, the victims, or this. But uh, when you cover the positive side, it's like you're not focusing, uh, as they as say in the talk, war, you, you manage to see the worst in the human being, hidden in the human being and the best. And these best parts uh, reflect a lot to me, the culture of the people uh, where you are going. So it's a way to show um, how this population under such a huge uh, threat are able to create a parallel reality and uh, like this kind of normality, which sounds abnormal in the middle of a war, in order to survive mentally. And this for me is very positive because at the end of the day those victims if we take the case of Syria which is the one i covered the most uh, we are talking of uh, half million men from dozen of different nationalities making a war why 22.5 have to survive between uh, between uh, their uh, front lines so for me this is happy that uh, these civilians are able and sometimes they come up with very original ways to to survive <laughs>
0: Uh, you shared a few of them with us during during the talk. Are there other creative ways that young people, in particular, across across the Middle East, have found ways to create this alternate
1: reality? Oh, there's a lot. I think one of the most fantastic reportage I read uh, this uh, this year was about uh, Campbell. He's a journalist He's based in Iraq, and he came out with the fashion how uh, in the middle of the war, or these uh, uh, young men uh, created like. Uh, super club to cop like uh, dress like british with the uh, hairstyle and with the uh, pocket watch and like a, three-piece suit. Yes, a three the, piece yeah. suit three piece so i was like come on this exists still and uh, this is beautiful
0: so even for you for somebody who tries to find these positive stories you can even be pleasantly surprised when yes. when you're seeing other journalists do the uh. same so it matters for you as a as a journalist to kind of to to keep going, you think, to to keep reporting on on the region?
1: It does. It does. I think uh, after you have been for uh, the decent time, like few months covering, even if it's on the field or not on the field, you can be in Beirut, but you are covering covering means you spend your night, especially with Syria, to talk with Syria normally in interviews at night. So you may spend from midnight until four or five a m talking and listening to all the despair through the other side of the line. And then you go to sleep and you're still worried and you think about this. So even if you cover outside or on the field, uh, at some point, just for yourself, you also need to try to find the good, otherwise you say, uh, what is this, where are we going? Later also, like for the second bite of hope. So as a woman, I'm always very interested how women and young people cope with the war. How you go normality, because from Spain we think that war is like 24 hours, cannons, clashes, ballots, no, there is life, people have to eat, otherwise the 23 minutes will be dead and they have to move and they have to, to keep their mind somehow. So one of the things I covered through the six years of war, like almost seven now in Syria, was always to focus how was this affecting to women because this is the part- war in the region that women they don't participate mainly. Well, except maybe for the Kurds, but there is not a big presence of woman in the front line. So they are more like victims, if you want to call it. Uh, and then I realized little by little that in Syria is happening what happened in Europe in the Second World War. So in the Second World War, men were too occupied on the front line that woman has to take into the economic infrastructures. Something that is happening in Syria and I realized, wow, in the administrations now they are mostly women. hmm. In the Dukans, where the small shops that they use all over Syria, you start seeing women serving. And then you realize, okay, out of the 3, uh, uh, 320,000 deaths, 200,000 are men. Out of the 80,000 Jews who are fleeing away from the military service, mandatory one, they are men. So now, women, a lot of widows and a lot of women are left alone in front of all these uh, business and all these responsibilities. And uh, the first woman who made me think about it, it was Um Ali. Um Ali was from the periphery of Halep. She has four children and a husband. And the husband didn't want to leave from there. He was afraid. And she was the one, it was a veiled woman who barely left her neighborhood. I mean, used to make the groceries to the shop, come back, and cook for their kids. And they were peasants. But she was so afraid for the life of their kids that she say, I'm, I'm going. I'm going with all the flood of refugees to Europe, and this will be better, my kids will be alive. So I decided to follow her from the border from Syria, uh, crossing to Tripoli, going into a boat from the boat to uh, to Mersini, south of Turkey, from the south of Turkey to Izmir, and then we stayed three days negotiating with the traffickers. So during the trip, what I realized, it was this woman who at night, when she was talking to me, she was afraid and saying, okay, I don't know if I'm leading my kids to the death because they're going to drown on the sea or I'm giving them a better life. And she was very insecure because during the day she was this strong woman uh, who never deal with men before. Her husband was doing it and she started dealing with the traffickers and she was negotiating and was saying no, $200 less. And she was going to the hotels and saying no and going to the buses and really she was doing excellence. I mean she did a record when she arrived to Lesbos. To, uh, One um, question that I've
0: um, I've always struggled with is that when we if we're writing about positive stories, are we whitewashing an otherwise very negative reality? I mean war definitely is not good right So when you're finding good stories, are you are we as journalists hiding the bad things that are happening? are we whitewashing the negative things that are happening when we're talking about you know, those small slivers of hope or
1: those small bits of, of good news? I don't think we are, the problem is like uh, we can confuse the reader depending of which kind of media or support we are working. So I like a lot multimedia because I think is a, a new way that you can explain many things at the same time. But for me it's mainly writing, so I have a limitation of 1000 words max for a reportage. So you cannot do everything, you have to focus one day on this, so it's going to be the bad one day and the good the other, which may be confusing. But when you do uh, TV, radio, you have any other kind of support which is more uh, flexible in this sense. I think uh, you can put the little asses in the middle of covering war. But no, you are not washing out war. On the contrary, you are putting a context. I mean, when you say you, journalists are putting in context that war is not this, uh, I don't know, Rocky movie where you are, uh, or Rambo, where you are 24 hours under the ballots, because then there will be uh, no one to survive to this there is mostly life trying to go on in the middle of the war. Battles are short, battles uh, uh, are intense, front lines are few, so we cannot, uh, on the contrary, I think we are giving the proper idea that the war is not a 7-11, 24 hours open.
0: What other examples? I'm, I'm really keen to get, to get more and more examples from you about these positive stories. In particular, um, something that you you just said, which I totally agree with which is that war and conflict brings out the best in people but it also brings out the the really strikingly good uh are there are there other moments that you can remember even the tiniest little examples where you were really struck by the goodness of of people not just a positive story that is happening but a human being being very good to somebody else in an otherwise you know indisputably bleak
1: situation Yeah, I have have many, 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 I I don't know, from the front lines, the attention of the soldiers or the militia men or whoever was there, that uh, they are always in very hard conditions. And when you have to stay there and sleep, they will make, I mean, they will try to make you like a five stars hotel, which means to give you the one sleeping clean bag they have. (laughs) One onion, one uh, little cheese that they have, and the two cigarettes who are left. And they are going to sacrifice it to give it to you. This hospitality that you have in the Arab world, they will magnify it on the front line because it's more difficult. Or oh, religious man that uh, will never shake my hand. When something bad happened and I break down and I start crying, someone will come and hug you. And this for this man was very difficult because for religion he is not allowed to... And being married to touch a woman. so it was a very huge step that uh, he left all his belief to the side because he thought the moment was important. But uh, there is a lot, a lot of stories of woman having you, even they don't have anything in Yemen, they don't have anything. They are dying of everything. and they will send the little kid to buy you a cola, which will be uh, like a very tiny glass of cola for me to drink in to thank me, to be there. Of course, you take a sip and you say, uh, no, I'm not feeling well, you leave it there, you know the minute you are going to leave, the kids are going to jump on it. But uh, you make sort of an excuse that, uh, no, I'm not feeling well, thank you so much. But this thing uh, means a lot, a lot, a lot.
0: In particular, Yemen is a is a place in the Middle East where even reporters who write a lot about the region don't get to write about Yemen and don't get to focus on on Yemen. Um, and I was just talking to, to Eric, one of one of our co-producers earlier, who was saying that the headlines that we all know about Yemen are basically, bombs, cholera, cuts, like that's essentially it. Um, as one of the few reporters even in the region who has been able to get into Yemen and do extensive reporting there, do you find that there was more pressure on you to 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 find to do good reporting of course, but also to find these nuggets of of light?
1: Uh oh, there was not pressure at all. I mean, we were tend to enter it was like whatever you can do is already good because now we hear uh, cholera and war and uh, bombs and uh, kids dying, but before we hear cuts and nothing. <laughs> so, I uh, used to get there and uh, there you always have a minder, so you have very high control. I was on the healthy area. You have always someone behind you. Then uh, movement is very hard, so each time you go out of Sana'a, is continuously bomb. Uh, they're bombing any, uh, any car moving on the street. Uh, so Getting the good stories, uh, is uh, sometimes I think it's not something, uh, at least the best good stories I got, the ones really made me happy to to write about them, I was not searching about them. You you bump into them. So for me, for example, in in Yemen, I really needed to file, it's impossible to file anything. Internet is not working or electricity. I really needed to file something. I was wearing my full niqab, full cover. And I asked a lady who had like a modern phone, I said, she may have said, excuse me, she don't mean. yeah, of course, I'm going to the cafe to have a, a, like a coffee with my friends. It was like 1 a.m., you want to join? And I was like, really, this exists. So I went to the, this cafe and it was like also a little oasis of obviously people with uh, some economy uh, over than the rest of the country. But uh, you will find a lot of people there, and you will find kids that their parents is in uh, Riyadh, in Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, and they are in Sanaa by bomb. But the father has to be there to get some money because it's very traditional that many Yemenis are working or uh, expats uh, who went to work to Saudi to have it. And during the war, they continue to be there, so they didn't have any hate. And at the same time, the father was calling his son every day, like. How are you with the bomb? It will be good. How are you there? You know, like these cross land things happening. So uh, I think the best good stories you come across in the difficult moments, suddenly a little oasis open and you say, Oops, you know, what I'm is really this? Prejudiced. When I was coming back to Sana, it was a very hard way because we were all under bombings. And uh, in this of the spot, I saw like a group of 50 people gathered in, in, a, in, in, in a reef, in a downhill, I don't know how you call it, like a precipice, a cliff. So there were like 50 people there, like all uh, like, uh, Houthis and civilians and everyone there. I said to the driver, please stop. I want to see what is going on. So down the cliff, like 200 meters down, there was a body, also of a black person. And they were all wondering how we can get the body up. And it was like, "Really? 200, uh, like 50 people? After one hour, we we're like almost 200 people. We are under the bombs. Uh, it's clearly not a national, and the, they are gathering all the efforts to see how to get the body out. So I had a zoom and I started taking pictures. The sheikh of the village came in, started taking pictures, and I see the body had the hands, uh, calf on the back. So I say, excuse me, Sheikh. I think this is assassination because look at the pictures. So the guy was like, we want the pictures for the mahkame, for the um, jury we're going to do. And I was like, really, I came here to take pictures now. I'm going to be a witness for a, <laughs> for a judgment for a guy killed in Sana'am, like in, in in Yemen. The guy was like, yes, yes. I'm Like, so really, you are going to make a judgment about this? Yeah, yeah, we're going to make an investigation, of course. OK. The took the body up, obviously it was also Somali who was killed. Uh, we don't know why, I never I never knew why, neither you send a picture and that was it. But I was amazed that under the bombings there was 200 men taking the robes, going down to make sure they get this body. So when he said that in these small oasis you get the personality of how the country is, like Yemen was unruly at this moment you have like President
0: you're Stalin. saying sometimes you just stumble upon the, the positive stories it's not things that you're looking for intentionally but they just kind of fall into your lap uh if you are on the look on on the search for them do you ever think you know I need to find these positive stories because I need to combat the stereotype that the Middle East is a place that is only full of negativity and that is war-torn and that is you know just a in a downward spiral, are you are you consciously thinking that there's a stereotype about the Middle East that I need to combat?
1: well, the the reason I choose to move to the to the Middle East like almost ten years ago is just because I have the deep belief that there is this uh, big gap who created between uh, public uh, opinion. In my case, I thought about Spain and Europe and the Middle East. and vice versa. I mean, there is uh, a lot of uh, prejudice coming in, stereotypes and uh, non-understanding from both sides, Arabs to Europeans, Europeans to Arabs. So when I came, I I came determined to kind of make it closer. So for me, when I try, if I do it on purpose and I search for for a positive story, I will search the one that, uh, in my case, Spaniard will be identified with and something that will be funny. Something that the reader, when reads it, say ah. But we do the same thing here. We don't call it like this. Maybe we don't put this, and maybe we do it on the other side. But it's like us. So if I search, if if I intend to do the positive one, I will try to bring something that help the reader to identify. And here, when they read it, they will be happy. And these kind of positive things, I think, helps a lot. I give you an example that. uh, a so simple gesture can change the perception of the whole country. When the terrorist attack happened in Barcelona, a few, uh, here they were fighting in Jurud uh, in Arsal in the west border with uh, Syria, against Al-Qaeda and ISIS, or uh, the local uh, franchise of Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, uh, and, or the new name, Fatah uh, al-Sham. So... Um, One of the soldiers, I don't know if it was his idea or uh, one of the units of the military of the Syrian army uh, got the idea. But there was a picture who appeared of the soldiers, Lebanese army fighting in Lebanon to expel jihadists, the same one who attacked Barcelona with the Spanish flag. He was holding this huge Spanish flag. This went to Spain back on images. And they were so happy. There were so many messages of gratitude. That next day, in the same place of Barcelona where the attack happened, someone uh, put a Lebanese flag. This didn't end there. When the National Day of Spain, uh, the of October, which is like Discover kind of South America, whatever contradictory day, but the most important day for Spain, was celebrated, in the defile that the army did. Uh, one Lebanese uh, soldier studying in Spain uh, was escorted by two Spanish soldiers and he he was holding the Lebanese uh, flag next to the Spanish one. Those little things, the day that one guy, we don't know why, maybe he smoked a joint and he decided, let's bring this for Spain. Maybe he's a Barca supporter. Maybe he just uh, was on honeymoon in the south of Spain. He raised a flag. And this has such an impact in the Spanish society yeah, and is back. We have a rule and we want to know justice. So this to say um, that, yeah, war, uh, war is a shithole, but, uh, <laughs> but there is always people surviving. And uh, I always say that in war you see the worst and the best of the human being. But we do have to remember that uh, the best of the human being is always present there. And that to survive mentally, you you create a different normality and a different alternative so you can keep on going on without becoming crazy. That's it.
2: I'm going to start off with um, a very weird topic for me, something that I wasn't really familiar with until um, recently, let's say. Uh, Many of you possibly heard about Shatila, which is a refugees camp in Beirut. Um, It's mainly focused on hosting Palestinian refugees, and recently, in the past few years, um, it has been uh, hosting an influx of Syrian refugees who also came from Yarmouk in Syria. Um, So first, I started visiting Shatila in 2013 and I was this, you know, young uh, woman reporter who's going there from a very different background, not knowing what to expect in a camp. It's a very crowded place. It smells horrible. The streets are like two-packed. You can find uh, grocery shops here, cars moving there, and I have no clue how cars managed to get into that camp. It's so weird, but somehow the people are living. And now, to my surprise, I was there um, covering uh, the massacre of Shatila, which had happened in, uh, in the 80s in Lebanon. So like every year, um, a news station decides to write a piece or to shoot a video about it. And I was there helping a journalist with the work. And as we were moving in the camp, um, this guy, Abu Khalid, was actually telling us the story he had witnessed it. He was a little kid, and he still remembers and has flashbacks about it. And for someone who has a wild imagination, such as myself, it was a horrible moment. I was walking. I didn't know what to do. I was imagining bodies here and there, imagining the smell. And I was so caught up in the moment. And all of a sudden, I, just, I see this lady, who's 80 years old, wearing purple, like flashy purple, and a hijab. And she's just sitting on a table with a sewing machine. And she's working. She seemed to be like working very hard. And I stopped for a moment. And I'm like, Abu Khalid, who's this? And he sounded very surprised. He was like, excuse me in Arabic. This is Um-Ghazwan. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't know who Um Razwan is. And he's like, this is our very famous fashion designer. She can literally fix anything. She can make wedding dresses, she can, she can you know, sew little holes in your, in your outfits, and she's really famous and you should actually meet her. And I was intimidated at first because the lady seemed to be you know, caught up in working and she, she has this desk in the middle of the street, so I didn't want to really impose myself. I approached her and I introduced myself and she was very friendly, um, her, like her purple outfit, her abaya, her, like, her dress was, was handmade, and I think that she had made it herself with her hijab. She was smiling. She didn't really care about her cracked teeth or anything, N- neither did she about her wrinkles. And I started talking to her, and as I was actually covering a massacre, it turns out that there's this really inspiring woman sitting right next to me. And she told me that her dream was to be this fashion designer. But being a Palestinian in the refugee camp and witnessing the massacre, which I was actually writing about, didn't really help her. So we ended up talking, and she told me that I know that this is not the best place to work. I know this is not the best situation, but I'm doing something that I love, and I managed to hold on to my dream, and everyone should. And at that moment, it hit me. Like, there are positive stories just around the corner. This lady is sitting there working. And I'm just, you know, worried about what to write about the massacre and the blood and all of that. And she was really inspiring. And so I think that starting that day, everything changed for me in that camp. I used to walk in as a total stranger. Someone used to guide me in from the guys. And right now, if I go to Shatila, I know where to grab a cup of coffee. I know Adil, who's like the most famous person there who hands in these amazing tomatoes. So I make sure to pick a bag while going out. And I no longer feel like a stranger who needs to rush home and to take a shower and to sit down and write my story. It feels like I'm someone who's actually there just listening to people rather than just, you know, taking um, the time to write some some stuff up. Um, And, like, Shatila is not the only place that caught my attention. Our second speaker that night was Um, the lovely Luna.
0: Luna. Luna is a news assistant at The Telegraph and an editor with Rasif 22, which is an online regional news website. She's reported particularly intensely on Syria, alongside some really wonderful Syrian citizen journalists and activists who, after six years of a brutal conflict, continue to report with a dedicated grace that is practically unimaginable at this point. Luna, thanks so much for joining us tonight and for being in the studio with us. You mentioned that your own reporting has been impacted by the live event. Can you tell us how?
2: Thank you, Maya. Well uh, it has been affected basically by the way that I've been thinking. Um, I've been looking deeply into the stories that I want to cover and I've been trying to look for positive signs and for like some of the interesting impacts of what people are doing in the areas that I cover more of like more of avoiding the blood and avoiding the killing and the death and all of that. I've been trying to actually dig out some of uh, the breakthrough that people go through when uh, when living in War zones and in uh, in areas that have been impacted by uh, by crisis And what have you found? Well, so far, I I went back to Shatila in my imagination, and I found out that there must be like different stories that are positive that I really didn't get a chance to discover yet. And so I've been planning so far in my head to do a list of five unexpected things to find in Shatila, whether there are personalities, people, traditions, um, festivities. I just have to go back there and dig deeper. Okay, so
0: thinking about positive stories then breeds more positive stories, I guess. Great. Um, And do you think readers end up engaging more with a place when you report on it more positively?
2: I mean, when a reader reads a story about something, let's say bad, that's happening in an area, they might want to try to help sometimes, but most of the time they can't really do anything unless it's an online campaign or supporting you know, the people in any way. But when they read a positive story, it really lifts them up and it gives them this motive or this positive energy because you never know what a reader is actually going through. He might have a better life, but he might be faced with an obstacle. And so finding out, for instance, that people in a conflict zone are building solar panels or are uh, inventing a new way to create electricity or are building a library that's been uh, uh, torn apart or burnt down this really gives them motive to work more and to uh, and to feel much more positive about their lives
0: have have you ever had re- readers reach out to you and and tell you oh my god this positive story really inspired me to act what can i do has that happened to you
2: well, it wasn't really about acting, but it was about a change so really of perspective. Um, after I covered the story um, of... Uh, the and then um, there are some things that really hit close to home. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the weird stories that I covered um, was uh, the drowning of my own family. So a part of my family decided, which are half Lebanese, half Syrian, they decided to, to make it through Europe. And they decided to go through Turkey and to uh, deal with smugglers. And I had no idea that this was happening. And two days later, I find out that they actually drowned. So my editors at um, the place where I used to work asked me if I felt compelled to write about it. And honestly, I really wanted to because this was my family and I felt really responsible. Whether it was professional or not, I was at, at debate with myself, but I wanted to. So I covered the story, and it was really negative and horrible. And I, was, like, I spent the night asking myself, how could I portray this in the best way possible? And then two weeks later, I get these messages on my Facebook inbox, which are two messages a woman from Tripoli in Lebanon and another woman uh, from Syria living in Beirut, they wanted to meet me and they sent me like these thank you notes because I encouraged them through my story to take a step back and not to go and um, take a trip in the sea to meet their husbands in Germany. And so I ended up writing about these two women Uh, I did, like, small portraits about them, and I really just felt that something that I did, like a story that I've written, really uh, had an impact on someone. Um, And one of the other stories... A few weeks ago,
0: you shared with us quite a personal story about Syrian citizen journalist Naji Jaref, who was a close friend of yours, who was assassinated about two years ago in in southern Turkey. Um, When tough difficult, very painful stories hit close to home like that. How have you managed to write positive stories? How can you bring yourself and have the energy to write a positive story like that? <laughs>
2: Well, it's mainly about um, honoring the person and like honoring the memory of the person. At first, it might come as a shock, but it's a big responsibility to to take on and to write about someone whom you've known closely and who've been a really close friend. But then you just you feel that there's a sort of a bigger responsibility that you need to highlight the positives and the the effect that he left and how, how he left people thinking about life, about journalism, about passion. Um... What questions didn't he manage to answer that people might look into answering in the future themselves by digging deep into his work, by rereading his pieces? And so it's sort of a responsibility. You have to honor the person. And it's not easy. It's challenging. And sometimes it gets too personal that you have to be subjective and you have to let go of some rules of journalism. But at the end of the day, if you manage to honor the person, regardless of the loss, then it should feel good enough for you.
0: It's an interesting point that you just said. I mean, there are there cases where you feel like you've had to fudge the line a little bit as a journalist, or maybe you know, have one foot in the journalist field and one foot in the activist field, or one foot as a journalist or one foot as a friend, uh, to be able to report honestly on a story or to be able to give the true testament to
2: a story. When I mean in Syria, when you're when you're covering Syria and you have a lot of uh, a lot of activists and a lot of media people and a lot of citizen journalists who became friends and who became close to you um, you just you start feeling like a sort of responsibility towards these people and you can't just report on any news sometimes you have to be the subjective person who just stops the phone call to ask about their family members or to ask about food or to ask about power Um, like um, do you have electricity now for how long will you have electricity Do you have internet access this is not a journalistic part this is something that becomes subjective because you care about these people they are your not only your contacts but also friends and people whom you've uh, you've grown close relationships with. You have to bend the rules a little bit in journalism these days, because war changed a lot of concepts, in my opinion, especially in writing and reporting. You've
0: especially spent a lot of time reporting alongside and even about Syrian activists and journalists who you have told us have an excellent sense of humor and just end up finding the craziest ways to continue to smile and to laugh and to make jokes in some of the really really darkest circumstances imaginable um you told us a few stories already can you share a bit more about uh
2: what these kinds of journalists are doing to keep a smile on their face well i just i just remembered today this really funny story and i think that it It's sort of, because of the pressure that we go through, some stories that slip out of your mind. You know that um, in the suburbs of Damascus and in the Ghouta area, and mainly Douma, there has been through the past few years a lot of shelling, a lot of missiles targeting uh, markets, and especially food markets. And so I remember this one time, I was talking to this activist, and we we had like we had set a date for a call, and he had to go and to take some pictures and to do some work. and I was waiting for him to come back. Uh, we used to talk on Skype online as as always. and suddenly, I just read like um uh, a short news on Twitter saying that uh, a local shop and a local grocery store was targeted, and and sort of uh, a flea market that, that set around uh, around that area. And so I knew that this guy who became a close friend was there, and I started trying to call and to reach. And then 40 minutes later, he comes back online, and he's like, "I'm sorry, it took me that long, but within." the chaos of what happened and while I was trying to shoot I remembered that my wife asked me to get some cucumbers and so I was looking for a store that is still open because after the airstrike everyone fled the area and so that was one of the funny things a guy managing to look for cucumbers 45 minutes after an airstrike in duma it's not something that you would imagine but and what has that taught you over time I mean you've
0: used can you remember what it was like when you first started reporting on Syria and kind of encountering these funny experiences? And, and now that you've built these relationships with activists and fellow journalists... What have you learned over time about how humor can help you deal with a tough situation?
2: I mean, they simplify everything as uh, as media workers and as uh, citizen journalists living in Syria. They make it all look so simple. When an airstrike hits, when when anything is happening, at some point you would feel that you're actually worried and scared much more than they are actually worried and scared about their own lives and their relatives' lives. So they sort of teach you to take things slowly and to just you know take a deep breath before overreacting or even reacting to something because it helps you maybe focus. Um, and I think that that's how they manage to stay uh, resilient in uh, in these circumstances. Does media
0: coverage help in that situation? I mean, does it feel like they the the contacts that you speak to, whether they're journalists or not, that they are. Um, maybe drawing strength from having somebody like you being able to talk to them every day, or that is trying to write about the situation that they're that they're going through. I mean, one one thing that I always found, for example, is I, talking to similar activists, um, I'm I'm always amazed that they even bothered to sit on Facebook and answer the questions that I have. Sometimes I have simplest questions like, who's in control of your town? What are you, you know, what are you eating on a day-to-day basis? And they are incredibly patient. You know, they're living under siege. They have a lot more difficult things that they need to be thinking about and dealing with. And yet they're willing to sit there and talk to somebody they've never met about some of the most difficult things they're they're going through. Have you found that there's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship where they're also maybe drawing strength or, you know, a little bit uplifted by your questions.
2: Well, they definitely they definitely like it when someone cares. And when you're not only talking to them because you're a journalist looking for information, they like to feel that someone from the outside, from a totally different world, from a very different society and background, is actually asking them about how they are, what they're eating, how they're sleeping, how did this this war affect them, and what do they do in their free time? I think that it really supports them, and it makes them feel... um, it makes them feel uh, loved, or, or it makes them feel supported. And you start, they build like this this resilience system, as I said, and they feel that they have a support system f- coming from the outside, and not only from their own society. It's like a stranger from the outside is supporting them and is encouraging what they're doing, even though that sometimes they really feel that what they're doing is not enough for their country. Nothing. So it definitely helps one of them. the most positive lessons that I learned from him So, how do I manage? Um, I take my time to grieve, I take my time to say that maybe it's not my day, maybe I'm not okay, but at the end of the day, I am doing what I believe in. And why do I focus on these positive stories? Because I know that I want to read such stories, like I want these to be written not only by myself, because while covering Mosul or Syria or Lebanon or Arsal or whatever, um, you just get this negative energy because there's war and there's blood, and then you need this little positive motive to keep you going, not only as a citizen but also as a journalist, because we all need that. We're all humans, after all, and journalists are really good in hiding behind their cameras or their words, but they always need this positive outcome. So, thank you. <laughs>
3: Um, I prepared my speech in the style of Arab dictators everywhere. Bismillah, rahman rahim No, but in reality, I mean, the fact is, I mean, Maya, you know, you know, kidding aside, is right. I mean, I'm not known as someone for the glass half-full mentality. In fact, I'm, you know, quite pessimistic and bleak and, you know, oh, woe is me kind of thing. And then this is my cue to sort of do my Humphrey Bogart thing, like, war is hell, man, something, right? And then at some level it is. And the fact is, if you look around you, then at the least, I mean, if you look at Syria, Iraq, Yemen, I mean, it's just so bleak everywhere, right? I mean, the fact is that if we consider a definition of ho- or one definition of hope to be that tomorrow will be a better day than today, then really, it's not so hot, right? But the fact is, you know, I mean, I mean, for all, to- I mean, I mean, for all two of you who follow me or follow my work, you'll notice that, you know, among the slew of sort of really heavy-hearted you know meticulously reported, I like to think at least war stories, right there are a few that are about food because again, those who know me, and as you can see from my you know somewhat sizable j lo butt and my you know i I, I like food, and so the thing is that um I remember you know recently I was in Mosul, which is not a place where I think you could say hope, hope, you know runs wild right and uh, And you know, I found this dish called pache, and i mean for those of you who don't know Iraq, pache is just this is brew of like sheep and cow heads and innards and brain and tongue and it's just all dumped in this vat of salt and water and the result is actually it's really good it's surprising how good it is right i mean it's just it's just amazing and you sit there and you're just you know chomping down on this stuff and in the style of all iraqi food it's of course calorific deadly it's meant to basically make you fat clearly right so i mean i mean it's just amazing stuff and Basically, I mean, yeah, of course, you could write about Mosul in terms of the horrific death toll, in terms of the insanity of the old city. I mean, I mean, everything is there, and I wrote about that, and I did so happily, I have to say. But at the same time, I was really glad to actually find at least one story, which for me was somewhat positive in the sense that, finally, food, I would argue, is perhaps one of the most sincere ways someone can be nice to someone i mean you know assuming we're not talking about being in bed or anything. and we
0: are joined now by the la times very very special correspondent <laughs> Nabih Boulos. uh on the night of the event a couple of weeks ago i introduced you as somebody who for whom positivity doesn't just blow out of their ears <laughs> and so a lot of people in the audience may have laughed and you may have laughed and people who work with you got it but um can you explain to us why you're somebody who is you know, now I like, can maybe be notorious for being cynical or pessimistic in that way. Why? And is it accurate?
3: It is very much accurate. I mean, I, I, I quite frankly tend to find, I think, the worst in situations. And and the reason why this is so perhaps is because, um, I mean, it's said that a, that a cynic is, a, I think, a frustrated optimist. I think that's perhaps true, especially in my case. Because, I mean, the fact is that, you know, I guess when it comes to the news, the event that made me even more cynical than I was before was the Egyptian Revolution. And the fact is, I was someone who really fell in love with it. You know, I mean, I was someone who, um, you know, at the time I wasn't doing so much news, I was doing other stuff, uh, you know, in my job. And I was infatuated with the whole narrative. I really liked the fact that, that we as a generation were finally rising up and doing, you know, that which our parents couldn't have done, et cetera, et cetera. And then I watched it slowly turn to shit. And I guess, you know, now, of course, it's a cliche now to say that the Arab Spring had turned into the Arab Winter, or whatever people say. But the fact is, it's true. And um, since then, especially since then, my view towards news and towards these uplifting moments, if you will, has always been one of doubt or, or one of sort of wondering when when the axe would fall. Right? And the reason why this is so is because it tends to, I think. Right? I mean, look at Egypt. It's a great example. I actually can no longer go there. I just I just don't wanna see you the people. Physically can't physically I I I, I, I mean I emotionally cannot be there anymore because frankly, and again I know this sounds cliche, then I apologize to my different friends, but I feel almost betrayed by that revolution. I just don't wanna, you know, interact with it.
0: And how does that affect you as as a reporter? I mean, do you do you now have this kind of I feel like we're talking about a relationship, but do you now have this like hard exterior shell that you you don't let stories become personal, or you just kind of it, it, it colors the way that you see a story? How does it affect your reporting?
3: No, I mean I think it's correct to say that you know I have an exterior of some sort, or I try to steel myself against certain stories, but you know even with that said, I mean I mean there are moments when you just can't help it. You know I'll give you an example. Um, so you know in my first reporting trip inside government-held Syria. Uh, I went to Tartus, and uh, which is a port city, uh, you know, on the Mediterranean in Syria. And uh, I mean, at the time, uh, Tartus was one of those cities where you had a lot of soldiers who had been killed, and they had put up, you know, pictures of the people you know had fallen and all that stuff. And there was a whole shrine. And you know, I mean, I wasn't too affected by that, I'll admit. But then I went to the guy, whose job it is to design those posters. Right, he would. I mean, the family would bring a picture of the of the of the killed relative or whatever, and and he would take it and put it up. And I was sort of leafing through different you know examples of this, and I saw um, a poem that that had been written by by a father of one of the killed soldiers, and it was just there, you know, beside the picture. And the picture had the usual you know accoutrement, sort of the Syrian flag and the uniform and all that stuff. Actually, it's all Photoshop, by the way. Mm-hmm. Usually, I should say. And I just read that poem, and I mean, I forget what it said right now, but I mean, it just just got me. I just started crying. I I, I just couldn't help it. I mean, you know, I had at that point been sort of you know, quite hardened, and I had seen a lot of stuff, and I was fine. But that one really got me. And I don't know why it did. But it was just such a moment of almost, you know, I mean, pathetic emotion. I don't say that negatively. I say that in a really sort of, you know, positive way. I mean, the person just, I mean, the father couldn't handle it, and he had to write a poem of some sort. It was just very heartfelt. And... Yeah, I lost it, for example. Same thing happened with, uh, I mean, I can think of another example in Iraq where, you know, we're just sitting there in this hospital and person after person comes, and this woman just starts crying for the doctors to help her son. And the doctor reassures her, and 10 minutes later, sure enough, her son dies. And the scream that she has, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an unholy sound when you hear a parent grieving for their son or daughter. It really is an unholy sound, and I'm an atheist, but... You know, if I can think of one sort of sound that should be in hell, that would be it. And, and these things are what get you, right? These are the moments of sort of pure, maybe even savage emotion that really get to you. Um, but I don't often let them do that. I'll admit, I, I, I try my best to sort of maintain distance. You know, you know, both for me and for the story as well. I mean, the fact is, you know, we do have to do this work. Right. Again, it's a choice, clearly, right? I'm not gonna pretend that, that this is, you know, a calling and one must do it. No, it's not about that. But the fact is that I like to do it. And if it means sort of Our taking sector, shitty stuff and boom, by keeping port distance port from it, well that's a price you have to pay. Right. And you know, I mean I mean examples of this stuff continue. So for example, I remember one time I'm I'm I mean we're driving back from Latakia back to Damascus. Now for those of you who know how this goes, you can actually avoid Homs entirely. Homs, you know, I mean where all the crap happened with the old city there, and you know the cradle of the revolution, blah de blah de blah, blah. Of course, I mean by the point, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, like like by the time we actually got there, it was a shit show, clearly, right? But you know, we're going, we're driving back from Latakia back to Damascus, right? And we can avoid it. And then you know, I take a nap because I'm tired. And then I realize that our driver is taking us into the heart of Homs, and I'm thinking, hmm, why are we here? We've done interviews, we're done. I mean, I don't want to go back to Homs, it's finished. And I noticed that we're approaching the Old City, which, I mean, at the time, I mean, the Old City was a real shit show, to be clear, like firing all the time, you know, lots of destruction, and we're getting closer and closer to the Old City. I'm like, why are we going there? And then I realized that our driver wanted to go to this knafe shop. Now, Now, for those of you who know what knafe is, knafe is Arabic cheesecake, and... You know, in case you're wondering, it is that terrible in the sense that it's just you know fatty and sugary and sweet and katle as we say in Arabic, right? And so the fact is, we're sitting there and literally a block away, there's this guy who's just firing this PKC, tuk 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 tuk, and the dude is in his knafeh shop. Yeah, I have knafeh I have knafeh whatever you want, right? And our driver's like, oh my God, Knafe. And she goes and she buys like a ton of Knafe and then she buys all this sweet cheese heading to Damascus. So clearly you're thinking, well, I mean, I guess this is, this is okay. If there's Knafe, it must be okay. And, you know, and and the reason why I mention all this, right, is because, you know, finally, you know, in my days before uh, you know, you know, I became a journalist, um, I would actually you know, assume that war zones were as we saw on TV. You know, sorry, TV journalists, I apologize, but it's true, right? I mean, the word war zone implies. A swath or swathe of territory that is let's say destroyed or decimated and for sure i mean in syria and Iraq and these places you will find instances of that where indeed entire neighborhoods have been leveled and destroyed but with that being said more often it's what i would call you know pardon me for this somewhat flippant description war donuts zone or, or sorry war donut holes so you have literally this area that is let's say destroyed and decimated and then around it it's kind of okay. I mean, it's, it's not exactly stable, right? It's not like, I mean, you wouldn't want to buy property there, to be clear, right? <laughs> but, but you'll be fine, right? I mean, I, mean, I mean, you will somehow live and day-to-day life continues, and that perhaps is where hope lies for me. I mean, I mean, the notion that in these places you have maybe not normal life for sure, but life, right? And of course, you know, this is what I'm supposed
0: can to Can I like, ask oh, you yeah, to just life. tell me what it was like to witness continue. one of no, the no, something that. being made no. in front of you? Like, what What was it? What was someone making in front of you that that you thought like, damn! Like among all of this crap, this moment and what I'm witnessing right now, and the and just the craftsmanship of this meal making Mm -hmm. that is happening here, that's where hope
3: lies. Well, for example, I mean, I was in I was in Baghdad, and and I'll tell you a bit more about the kahi story, right? You know, kahi again is this pastry that's just oil and butter and fat and just its marvelousness right? And and sugar and cream and everything. It's it's deadly. But you know, uh, I mean, if you've seen you know Iraqi men in sort of their late twenties, they tend to become pretty, pretty hefty people. You know, they're they're heavy, and this particular guy looked like a wrestler. I mean, he had you know meat hooks, if you will, and these like saucer-like fingers. And the guy is just, you know, here we are, 6 a.m. on a Friday morning, and you see him just sort of doing this, it's like it's like delicate surgery, right, with this with this thin film of pastry. I mean, he grabs it, and then he just sort of caresses it into a fold, and then another, and he works at it in this you know, almost ballet-like movement with his fingers. And then, you know, when he rolls it out again, he, and this was really what struck me, he really, I think, tenderly placed it on the tray, right? And it wasn't a function of affection, it wasn't a function of anything. It was just a function of doing your job well. And I found that to be magical, somehow. I mean, you know, amid all the crap, and, and Baghdad, I mean, was a beautiful city, it you know, reminds me now of a, of, a, of a battered woman in some way. Um, you know, but, but despite all the crap, here's this guy at 6am making this really delicate, beautiful pastry for no other reason than, than that that's his job and one must do it. And I like that. I, I, I find that to be the most sincere form of well, of behavior, perhaps, in a war zone.
0: I'm getting hungry. <laughs> that sounds
3: great. <laughs> it must believe me.
0: Uh, what was the best meal? you have had in the strangest place
3: that's a hard one that is a hard one I've yeah, had some many good stuff I have you know actually the pacha was the pacha one was really just something because I mean I got the chance to see it from A to Z and it was gruesome I mean it was to so the witch's brew oh yeah I mean it was so <laughs> gruesome like like just you know I mean you know unfortunately in our job we've seen a lot of body parts a lot of especially dismembered heads whether in video or in person I've seen them in both unfortunately and I was watching these guys just really decimate this cow's corpse and remove all the hair and everything and I you know went with them throughout every step of the way through every step of the process and I saw how hard it was and then just we're sitting there and, and I finally get the chance to taste it right and it happened to be Ramadan so it was iftar. and of course I had been eating and drinking all day to be clear I mean I'm an atheist but um you know, I still waited. You know, just out of respect for those around me, right? And that first morsel, that that moment of anticipation. I mean, I mean, I'm salivating now as I say it, just because it was so lovely. And, and and you just grab that sort of first piece of stuffed intestine with a sliver of cheek right over it, and you just bite into it, and it was, it was a revelation. It really was. It was Is wonderful. it? I
0: wonder. I mean. Not to not to come up with like a really overly cliche uh, comparison, but is uh, is that meal in the middle of an otherwise bleak situation as beautiful as a positive story in an otherwise sure. bleak landscape? Well, right. I think
3: well, well, I think it is a positive story. I mean, again, you know, for me,
0: but is it that much more delicious? That's of what course.
3: I mean. Oh, oh, you mean you mean like like does it make it even better the yes. fact that it's there? I think so. I mean, I think the fact that sh- that, that this is being done. In such a difficult place, like the Knafe, right? I mean, I mean, the Knafe had a certain, you know, perhaps a, a what's the word for it? A certain uh, hint of desperation that made it even <laughs> tastier, perhaps? I, I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but the guy had come across a war zone, literally. And in the case of Homs, for example, you know, again, the city in central Syria, it really was a war zone. And the guy is just crossing through to make cheese, you know, for his sweet pastries. Again, I'm it has to be some pretty good cheese. It, it was That's... fantastic cheese. I mean, go. you just know it's good cheese. The guy is making it, you know, right? you know, in the midst of the all of this crap. That, you know, for me, I have to say, I didn't have the fortune of seeing Mosul, Aleppo, Homs, Sana'a. I just didn't get the chance to see them before the wars hit them, really. I mean, it's actually, I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, I'm so ashamed as an Arab not to have seen Halab, not to have seen Homs, not to have seen Sana'a. And how could I? How dare I? And the fact is that, you know, I mean, if I write about this stuff, when I write about things that seem flippant and stupid and maybe a little bit humorous sometimes, it's, in a sense, a little ode, if you will, that I sort of give to these cities as they once were or, as a, or maybe as I hope they will be in the future. I mean, you know, I don't want to sort of make this self-indulgent, you know, as, as these things can be. It's not about me. Fuck me, finally. Right? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, people, I mean people are having far more difficult problems. But the fact is, since I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to cover this stuff, and you know, a shout out to the LA Times, I have really good editors, so that, so I can do what I want. Um, the fact is that, you know, yeah, I mean, guess what? I will cover Pache, I will cover Kahi, I will talk about parkour in Damascus. I'll talk about, you know, I mean, I mean, I got reamed by an activist recently about writing about high heels in Bab Tuma. Well, you know what? Fuck it. I will do that too, because the fact is that beyond all this stuff, beyond all the bleak, dark crap we see every day, and there's a lot of it, right? There is somehow not hope, but continuation, right? A a, a belief that
0: uh, you mentioned in your talks that you had written, you mentioned very quickly that you had written a story, something of mentioning women uh, wearing high heels walking through Bab Tuma, oh, sure. which is a neighbor in Damascus, uh, and that you got some, some feedback for that. that was oh, I got maybe not reamed so positive. for that one, yeah, for right, sure. So what, I mean, what can you tell, tell us a bit more about that criticism and what kind of other negative feedback you get when you write a, a story like that?
3: Well, I mean, it's funny because that sort of feedback only comes when one is writing about Syria, which I have to say has become, you know, a conflict that is very polarizing for those who read it, um, almost as polarizing as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so, I mean, especially if you're if you're covering stuff in government-held Syria, uh, you know, a lot of people on Twitter will just come after you, right? And they will make sure that that you know that, that your life is a living hell, even though I mean, the fact is, it's it's funny because I mean, the humanity they deny. Uh, the government held areas in syria is presumably what the government you know does in its own messaging to the rebels or 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 the people who live in rebel held areas so it's kind of funny um yeah i mean i got the whole thing oh here's this guy you know he's gone for the cliched image of normalcy women on but the fact is a woman wearing high heels in the middle of a war zone is i mean i mean is a semblance of normalcy i mean you know i'm sorry to say it it's a fact right i mean here's someone who assumes that she won't have to run that's perhaps a sign of things being normal, right? Or, you know, as normal as they can be in a place like Damascus right now. And, and I mean, you know, again, I, I, think, I think, you know, this was a function more about people just wanting to be snarky than them actually being annoyed about positive stories. But, I mean, every now and then, people will sort of take the role that I usually take, which is to say that, oh, look at this guy. He's, you know, writing crap when all this important stuff is happening, as if there isn't bandwidth for both things. I think the fact is that it's important to have both. Now, I mean, maybe maybe I will agree with Luna a bit in terms of balance, although perhaps I skew more towards the negative, the positive. Um So yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't really say much to that because I think again, the criticism wasn't about the positivity or about sort of one talking about high heels. I think in the case of those people, it's just about sort of attacking anyone who writes anything from government-held Syria. Some people.
0: Have you gotten other negative feedback about writing positive stories ever?
3: No, as a rule, actually. The, actually, the story that has gone in the most you know, views, right, that I've written is the one on Kahi. And in fact, I mean, you know, I, I, I did a video for it at the time. And, you know, the video is 40,000. And again, it's not Despacito, but I mean, 40,000 for is? me? I, what I know, is, what is Despacito, really? right? But for me, 40,000 is not bad. And I mean, it features me eating pastry. I mean, it's not exactly a pretty sight.
0: 40,000 so. people wanted to watch you eat a pastry. I know, isn't that tremendous? That's so uplifting.
3: <laughs> it is at some level. <laughs> what say? And it's not about resilience so perhaps, I mean, you know, I, I, I hate when you have these, you know, war attacks or, I mean, you know, like these like terror attacks in London or something. Oh, Londoners are so resilient. Oh, Parisians are so resilient. It's not about resilience. You basically go on because you have to. You are alive and the option is either to commit suicide or to continue. Guess what? You're going to probably continue. I mean, I will because I personally like myself enough to continue, right? So <laughs> that's the way it is. And with that being said, in those moments of sort of liking yourself and doing the work that you want to do, right, that, or I should say, there, perhaps, is where hope lies. But that's just me. So.
0: Okay. And that's a wrap for the final episode of our inaugural season. To listen to the talks in full as they were delivered in Beirut. You can download them from iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to our three excellent guests for joining us, to everyone who made it to our live event at Rewalk in Beirut, and to the great staff there for being so supportive. Thank you to Audio Addicts Studios for hosting our recording sessions, and most importantly to all of you who have downloaded this episode and all the previous ones in our season. Our bump theme music is by Wael abi Fakir, Jad Abi Aqkar, Haj Hajj and Adrian Hatrick, who can frequently be found rocking out in Beirut. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, at Podcast Byline, on Facebook by searching The Byline Podcast. You can email us at thebylinepodcast at gmail.com, or if you want to see pictures from our events, then you can check us out at our Instagram page, at thebylinepodcast. We are very good looking, I promise. Joining me in producing this podcast are Eric Reedy, a masterful chef and even better writer, and Hugo Goodridge, the wittiest guy in town. Dasha did our mixing, and Hugo was our editor. That was our season finale. We so appreciate you all coming along for this journalistic experiment. The three of us have learned a lot about our own jobs and about storytelling in general, and we hope that you have too. We hope you'll be attending and listening to our future episodes. Thanks again.